Please take your Bibles with me this morning and let's turn together in the Word of God to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4 this morning. Let's turn together to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. This morning we will direct our attention to really the heart of a message that Paul is teaching to the church at Galatia regarding the truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I want us to begin in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 7 to lay the context. Galatians chapter 4 verse 1 through 7. Paul writes this and he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Verse 7, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Well, this is the word of the Lord. For many people, this time of year, what we would call the observance Christmas is a special time of year for them. It is their favorite time of year, and maybe one reason why that is is that because in one sense we understand as Christians that it's not like we wake up when the month of December comes and all of a sudden remind ourselves of what what Christmas is all about. This is something that as Christians we cherish and think about and meditate upon not just yearly or quarterly or monthly, but daily. We think about how our God has come for us as his people, his, his first advent. But I think maybe I could articulate for many this morning why this is a special time of year, but maybe a favorite time of year is just the gospel echoes that are reverberated all around. Maybe in a way that is different than any other time of year, literally everywhere you go, you see echoes of Christ. Now, as is already stated in the prayer this morning, I'm not sure many or most, if all, truly know what they're singing about, truly know what is the, we often say, is the, the meaning or the purpose for the season. But the Christian, the disciple of Jesus, cannot help but hear these things and have their hearts stirred up in wonder and praise at the coming of our Messiah, the coming of our, our Savior. In fact, if we were to take a poll this morning, many of you would have a a favorite Christmas carol, and you would no doubt passionately state, here is why I like this one. And it would probably boil down to a particular phrase or purpose or statement that is found in that Christmas carol that draws your heart to it. I want to read to you what I feel like is the melody line of really summarizing all the Christmas carols, and it's found in Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, Wesley writes, Hell the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, 
risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Friends, this is the melody line of the incarnation of Christ. This is, this is what it's all about. This is what humbles us. This is what stirs our hearts up to praise our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Particularly that line, born to give them second birth. Friends, you and I cannot sing that song without understanding to those of us who are in Christ, to those of, of us who truly experienced the, the new birth, we are those who have tasted and seen of the goodness of the Lord. Amen? We are not those who are walking as we once were in our deadness, in our trespasses and sins. When we sing that line, it means so much to us. Born to give them second birth. More about that in just a moment, but the new birth. The doctrine of regeneration. Here in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is writing an epic work to the church at Galatia. He's guiding them like a loving, faithful shepherd to understand the distinguishing marks of the law and the gospel. The, the concern of legalism and reverting back to legalism and living under the grace that is found in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Right here in the middle of chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul inserts in making his argument about the covenant of grace, who we are as children of grace and walking in the grace of Christ, he gives us a most beautiful portion of Scripture regarding the incarnation of Christ. This morning, I want us to consider for a few moments here, beginning number one in verse four, Paul points to the moment of his coming. The moment of his coming. Here, in describing the arrival of the, the Savior, of the Christ child, Paul uses... Holy Spirit-inspired, beautiful language that just jumps off the page at us. And it's not just beautiful in a literary sense or structure. It is beautiful because God wrote this. It is pregnant with meaning. It is, there's a density to the text in the phrase in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Throughout history, many people have viewed God in different ways. False views, and I will not take the time this morning to walk through deficient, heretical views of God, but I will point out one, and it's the, the view of deism. Deism. If you're familiar with deism, deism is the view and the belief that there is a God, but that that God is not actively involved in the details of men, that he is not actively caring he is not actively in the weeds. We often hear CEOs or board leaders or people up high say, you know, we just try not to get into the weeds. We just stay out of the fray. Not our God. Here Paul points us to the fact, the moment of his coming. And when was that? It was a moment that was not one second sooner than God purposed and planned. And it was a moment not one second later than God purposed and plan. This false view of deism, and the reason I picked that one is there are many famous people 
even in our nation's history, founding fathers and others, who held to the belief that, yes, there is a God, but that he has created all things. And in a sense, much like a watchmaker who takes a watch and puts the parts and the components together and he winds it like an old-fashioned timepiece, he has wound it and now it is operating, it is ticking, and now he has walked away and he is no longer personally involved in the things that he has set in motion. Church, I'm here to tell you that is blasphemous. I'm here to tell you this morning that that is wrong. And I will not take the time this morning to walk through portion after portion of Scripture to show you how that is wrong. But I will point you to one verse found in Galatians chapter 4, the beginning of verse 4, that summarizes why that is wrong. But in the fullness of time, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Here Paul is pointing us to a, a particular doctrine about who God is. And that particular doctrine, who God is, as we think about the attributes or the perfections of God, is singularly the decree of God. The decree of God. Ephesians 3, verse 11 says this, according, it's described like this, according to the eternal, not purposes, but according to the eternal purpose, which he accomplished, God the Father, accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There in Ephesians 3, the decree of God is described as the eternal purpose of God. In Acts chapter 15, verse 18, it's given to us in this way. Known unto God are all his works from all eternity. What are we talking about? What we're talking about is the decree of God. Church, be comforted this morning in a world that is constantly reacting. It is consistent with creatures to scramble. It is consistent to created beings to, to react. But in a world of reaction, we have a God that never reacts. He only acts. Known unto God are all his works, even from the beginning of the age, even from all eternity. Peter describes the decree of God in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, as his determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Turn with me briefly to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. Let's turn together to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. And I want to point you to the beginning seeds, what is described as, this, as the proto-evangelium. The gospel in seed form. The promise of the gospel. And remember, as we read Genesis 3, verse 14, as we consider the moment of Christ's coming, that God only acts, He never reacts. When Adam and Eve sinned, God did not have to consider and have a cup of coffee and meditate within Himself and draw out a new blueprint and come up with now plan B or plan C. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, Notice there, so the word of God, the word of the Lord, came to the serpent and it said this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall 
crush. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, verse 16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. And then to Adam, he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Here we see the promise of, the beginning promises of the gospel. There in verse 15, between your seed and her seed, and you shall, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God's people throughout all of time up until this point were waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled, to be consummated. In fact, when we consider our first point, the moment of his coming, you could say it like this, God's people have always been awaiting people. God's people throughout every age have been those who are waiting upon the promises of God. I'll be encouraged this morning as we reflect upon a year that has just passed, and as we, by faith, look ahead to the year that is coming, our future, regardless of the prognications and the best reports and estimates of what is to come and the doomsday headlines, church, let me just remind you that our future as awaiting people, as a gospel people, our future is as bright as the promises of God. God's people have always been a people looking to their king, waiting for his promises to be fulfilled. Back to Galatians chapter 4. We see that Paul points the church at Galatia to understand that the fullness of time. What, what is the fullness of time? It is the time that God appointed. It is not a happenstance. The language that Paul is using is that there are events and circumstances and hours and seconds and days and months and weeks and years. But it was not a happenstance. At the appointed time, God sent his son. It is the completion of the period of the preparation in God's sovereign timetable of redemption. And it tells us this, that at the very moment, the very second that God, by the Holy Spirit, hovered over Mary's womb, that there were no accidents, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His, His Son. Now just briefly, I want to take a moment to unveil for us why it is believed that the moment of his coming was perfect according not only to the scriptures but according to just factual data that historians have been able to see. In fact, in my preparation this week, I saw long lists. I saw short lists. I saw just two or three things. I want to give you just a couple. Many people have asked, why did Jesus come when he came? Was there not a better time? As moderns, we tend to think of our time as the best time. 
We tend to look at history past with rose-colored glasses. We tend to judge it more harshly. One of the laws of studying history is not to judge anything outside of its time, to understand it within its construct, to understand it within its framework, to understand it within its background structure, and to understand the mindset of the times. To view history past through the lens of today alone is a path for sure failure and skepticism. Friends, as we look backwards, it's believed not only theologically, that God brought his son, as Paul describes, in the fullness of time, but practically it was the right time religiously in the life of Israel. Israel, through its captivities, namely its Babylonian captivity, had forsaken its idolatry, its idols. In fact, during the exiles, the synagogues were established with specificity, schools and courts, and adherence to God's law was strictly followed. The people of God had the completed Old Testament canon of Scripture. God's truth and His Word fed them, led them, and guided them. Has it ever dawned on you that the apostles and during the ministry of Jesus outside of what He was currently doing, the Bible that Jesus memorized, the Bible that Jesus had was the Old Testament Scriptures. The Bible that Jesus preached on the day of Pentecost was the Old Testament Scriptures teaching the Jews of the promised Messiah who was to come, that they crucified the Lord of glory. But what text did he use? Peter didn't use, say, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Uh, I'm being facetious. Peter, Peter quoted from and pointed back to the Old Testament Scriptures. It was the right time religiously. Secondly, it was the right time culturally. Under the great leaders and those who have taken over the world, God raised up one man singularly, Alexander the Great, to dominate the whole known world. Wherever Alexander's dominion went, he established what was known as Greek culture. And with that Greek culture, Greek language, Koine Greek, Greek writing. In fact, literacy was at an all-time high under Alexander the Great's reign. It was a great time culturally for God's word to come forth in a particular way in the coming of his son for the church to be established to worship and to make disciples thirdly it was a wonderful time politically now we could all look to negative examples and say what about what about what about but just hear the points that I'm trying to make here this morning politically it was the time of peace it was considered the Pax Romana there was no war taking place outside of the oppression of the Jews. Yes, they were under the Roman occupation, but even that considered, it was a time of peace. It was a time of economic and political stability. Roman infrastructure and roads were taking place and being built all over the known world. The Greek language, the Roman infrastructure, the Roman roads, you can see the sovereign God of history. Capital H-I-S, writing his story. Raising up everyone and everything as we've been seeing in the book of Esther on Sunday evenings for such a time as this. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, as we move from point number 1, as we consider the moment of his coming. John chapter 1, Paul says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth, his son. John writing and picking up here on this thought, 
gives us further amplification and a cross-reference here to help us to understand just exactly what this is. John chapter 1, verse 1, maybe some of the most beautiful descriptions of the incarnate Son of God. John writes this, he says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word is another name for Jesus Christ, the second member of the triune Godhead. In the beginning was the capital W, Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not comprehend it. Let's just hit pause here for a second as we think about in the fullness of time. Notice what John is saying is that all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. If you understand this rightly and appropriately, Jesus Christ, the creator, listen, in a sense, made the very cross that he was hung on. Nothing was made without his participation. Jesus Christ is this perfect Savior. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And I want to just remind you that the greatest light on that night was not the, the light of the angels. It was not the light of the stars that guided. It was the light of Christ. And that light shines, verse 5, in the darkness. And yet, this spiritually dark, blinded world did not comprehend it. Then look with me, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here, John gives us further amplification on the moment of his coming when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son secondly notice with me this morning the means of his coming again we notice this in verse four the text tells us that god sent forth his son jesus did not come abstractly jesus was sent by god the father the first member of the triune godhead to redeem us as sinners. Turn with me to John chapter 3 verse 16. And as you're turning there, I want to remind us as those who've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ that every aspect of salvation, salvation's plan begins with God. God is always first. God is always previous. Salvation is God's idea. Salvation is God's plan designed And planned out before the foundations of the world. God sent forth His Son. 1 John 4.19 says, We love Him because He first loved us. In John chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent forth His Son. God is the author of salvation. No doubt, today and tomorrow and the coming days, you will have moments of celebration with your family. You will give gifts. 
you've put thought into those gifts. You've wrapped those gifts. These are moments of celebration. Why, why do we give gifts? I think it's appropriate to give gifts at this time of year. I think it's special. I think God is delighted when we express to one another our love and care for them. God is the great gift giver. For God so loved the world that he gave. Gave what? Gave whom? That he gave his, his son. Friends, the gifts that we will open today, tomorrow, and the coming days, it's interesting what happens, right? We unwrap the bows, we unwrap the presents, and uh, people, particularly children, begin to play with those novel devices or contraptions and toys. For some, within minutes, they're broken. For others, by the end of the day, they're already in the trash heap, cannot be repaired. For others, if you give it enough time, they will all eventually make their way to the landfill. But God, notice here in verse 16, the gift of his son, it's worth, there's so much wrapped up here, is that it, we should not perish, but we should have everlasting life. God is the one who planned salvation. God is the means of his coming. God sent his son for us. And I just want to tell you here this morning, if you are lost and dead in your trespasses and sins, if you love the gifts more than you love the giver, namely the God who gives every good and perfect gift, friend, you don't know the meaning of this season. Do not be one of those who sings the songs and yet do not feel and know the songs experientially in your hearts as those sons who have received not just the first birth, but the second birth, the new birth. Following what Jesus describes to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Can I ask you this morning, have you been born again? He brought that gift to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment of his coming, going back to Galatians chapter 4. Secondly, the means of his coming. Thirdly, we see the miracle of his coming here in verse 4 and verse 5. Going back to Galatians chapter 4, read there with me. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as, as sons. Here, this is pointing to the Precious doctrine as we hold to is the virgin birth of Christ, born of woman, yet fully God. Jesus being born of a woman, as we sang about this morning, as we heard in the scripture reading as well, he was born as a descendant of David. In fact, Matthew takes the time to articulate in his genealogy his lineage going back to David and Abraham to show to us how Jesus is the Messiah, Savior, king who has come to save his people to save them from what to save them from their sins he was born under the law briefly with me now go with me to romans chapter 8 verse 3 romans chapter 8 and verse 3 when jesus came he came under the law born under the law to fulfill salvation for his people. Romans chapter 8 verse 3. For what the law could not do. And that it was weak through the flesh. God did 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the miracle of His coming, that God would send forth His Son to save. And He sent Him under the law. Like every man, He was responsible to the law. He was born under it, born with a responsibility to it. But unlike every man, He fulfilled it. He obeyed it perfectly. Friends, this is the gospel. Lastly, this is the mission. Notice there back in Galatians 4, the language, God sent his son. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. That means to buy back those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. He was born under the law. He lived in accordance to the righteous requirements of the law, yet without sin. And he did it perfectly for you and for me. It's been said that man does not realize just how bad he really is until he tries very, very hard to be moral, to be good. Little children, think of it like this. I'm not going to get in trouble at all this week. That little chart that mama has on the board in the schoolroom or wherever it is, I'm doing all the chores this week without fail. Mom and dad are not going to have to tell me to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Perfection is being achieved this week. Well, that assumes that perfection has not been achieved up until this point. But granted, perfection is now going to be pursued this week. Maybe you've had moments like that. You were arrested. You find yourself in the back of a police car and your minds pass as a teenager or as a young adult. Doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Was it the end of the world? In one sense, no. But in another sense, with your mom and dad, yes. It was the end of the world. And as you have those handcuffs on and you're sitting there thinking about your plight and your state, you say, you know what? I'm turning over a new leaf. This is never happening again. Okay, I'm not hitting home with some of you. For some of you, when you get that ticket, that speeding ticket, maybe some of you got it this past week, you say, you know what? I'm tired of paying these fines. I'm never getting a speeding ticket again. And then when you see those blue and red lights in your rearview mirror, you are offended because you have been striving so hard to keep the law of the speeding rules of the land. It's been said that Men do not realize just how wicked they really are until they try very, very hard to be good. Friends, just simply look at the standard of the law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments. They are, as Paul has already used the language in verses 1 through 3, describing the sonship that is under the care of a guardian. He goes on to unpack this, is that the law is a guardian for us. The law was a schoolmaster which showed us our need for Jesus, for the Messiah, for Christ. As we consider that, the law is what exposes us like a mirror that shows us our blasphemy. It shows us our hatred as it really is, which is murder. It shows us our lust for what it really is, 
as adultery. It shows us our theft as what it really is, as sinning against our neighbor. It shows us what the truth is and what lies are. And it shows us the requirement of God's command that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And friends, what the grade that the law gives to each one of us as we look into the mirror of God's law is a crushing F. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 describes it like this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you went to school. I, I don't care what the Lord, by His grace, has allowed you to achieve in your lifetime. If you are found outside of Christ, friend, you have a failing grade morally. It's an F. You fall short of the glory of of God. Romans chapter 3 goes on to describe that no man loves God, seeks after God, even desires Him, that all of us fall short of His, of His glory. So what do we do about that? We look to the perfect Savior gift that God has sent for us in the form of His Son. He is the Savior. And no one else can achieve what Christ achieved for His people. That's why Matthew says in Romans 1, Matthew 121, For you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. When you look to Jesus by faith, as Paul describes in Romans 4 verse 5, to him that believes and no longer works, to him that doesn't work. For some of you, you're working this morning. You're being here this morning as a part of your works to make you right with God. God, are you happy with me? I'm, I'm in church this morning. God, are you pleased with me? I hope if I were to die today, I'd go to heaven because on Christmas Eve, I'm in church. Listen, to him that no longer works but believes, to him it is accounted for righteousness. The good news of the gospel is that Christ came and he saved his people from their sins. This is justification, justified. That's a legal declaration before the eyes of God that when you and I look upon Christ by faith, that he was the perfect God-man who was sent by God, who lived the perfect life that we are supposed to live and yet are incapable of living as we experience, as I just try to describe for you, we realize that we are incapable of moral perfection. He came and lived it perfectly. And when we look to him by faith and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that he has saved us and we repent of our sins and turn and look to him alone and live for life and salvation, the Bible tells us that we are justified. This is a legal declaration that says the righteousness of Christ is now placed upon the account of sinners. And the sinner's sin is placed upon the perfect Son of God, who is the only one who could save us from our, our sins. When God looks at us, he sees us as if we have always been his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How does Jesus save us from our sins? Well, he saves us not only through justification. We, we realize that salvation is being realized in real time as we are being saved in sanctification, there is a struggle with sin. There is a battle with sin. 
And by God's grace, our minds and our hearts are transformed and renewed day by day as we spend time in His Word, and His Spirit, as His Spirit leads us into the truth, as His Spirit creates within us through the new birth, new hungers, new desires, new passions. So as the things we once loved, we no longer love. The things we once would never be found doing, we now love and embrace His truth, His Word, His church, His kingdom. And as we grow in grace, our passions change, our desires change, and our sin is less and less. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying there. In sanctification, we're not sinless. But there's a very real aspect that as we grow in the faith and grow in grace, we are sinning less and less, and it's all by His grace. Our eyes are fixed upon Jesus. We're looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And the day will come, finally, where we are glorified. Glorification. You shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. This is salvation, not just from the, the penalty of sin. This is salvation from the presence of sin. You know, it's interesting as we're talking about the gospel echoes of the season echoing around about all around us. There's maybe one word that echoes more than any other word, and it's this, peace. Peace on earth. Even lost men understand and desire peace. There would be no conflict, no warring, no strife, but they only understand it out there, but they don't understand it in here. Friends, Christ came not only to bring peace out there, once fully and finally the day is coming where he will establish his kingdom and his reign. Joy to the world. But the good news of the gospel is that he has brought peace in here. And this is expressed through the work of adoption. Now notice what Paul writes there as we conclude this morning. Look at there, Galatians chapter 4, verse 5. And he says this, To redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Adoption. Well, how is that expressed? What does that look like? He goes on in verse 6 to describe it like this, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir of God through, through Christ. J.I. Packer writes this regarding the beautiful doctrine of adoption. He says this in his book, Knowing God. He says, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. This may cause the raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God on which, since Luther, Luther emphasized and placed the greatest stress, we are accustomed to say almost without thinking that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us as sinners. Nonetheless, Careful thought will show that the truth of the statement that we have just made. He goes on to say, But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. The doctrine of justification makes us right before God the judge. But in the doctrine of adoption, we are loved by God the Father. Goes on to say, to answer the question, what is a Christian? 
He says, the richest answer that I know is that a Christian is one who has God as his father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Here as Paul points us here in Galatians chapter 4 and to bring us to a conclusion this morning, this is the beautiful consummation of the gospel, of the sending of God's Son, is that you and I are those here this morning because of the earnest of the Holy Spirit. Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, we are able to cry out this morning, Abba, Father. We have all the rights and privileges of an adopted son. We have in this gift of Christ eternal, as John 3.16 describes, everlasting life. As we marinate in this truth, in the word of God, as we sing the songs of the season, do you stop to give consideration to this wonderful tenet of the gospel, adoption as sons and as daughters? What Paul is saying is that at the proper time, at just the right time, God sent forth his son to buy us back, to redeem us, to purchase us, to adopt us as his sons and daughters through the work of our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this message this morning is not a message fully on adoption, but I'll just say this as Christians. All of us should be intimately interested in adoption. Because if you're in Christ, you are adopted. You're no longer a slave to your sin. You've been bought back by the finished work of Christ. And you are now a, a son. It's no mistake that Paul here in our text uses the word son and not children in the sense. In the original, it's written in the phrase and the understanding as, as son. There was an appointed time where in Greek culture and in Roman culture where a, a son was no longer recognized as a child that was under the guardianship of a slave who was their schoolmaster or tutor or guardian. There was an appointed time where the father would look at them and recognize that they were now fully recognized as a son, ready for all the privileges of sonship, ready for all that was theirs and their inheritance. There was a great divide to where they were considered fully and finally the son of the father. Well, this morning, I want to urge you, as you're listening to me, to do either two things. To rehearse the moment of your salvation when you were adopted by faith as you looked upon the Lord Jesus Christ, when you became a son of the Father, a child of God. And there may be some even here this morning who are realizing for the first time that you've not known God. You're not his son or his daughter. You're not his child. You're realizing in this very moment as the Holy Spirit is blessing the teaching of his word, you're realizing that you've never looked at God as your father. You've never looked at him through the lens of adoption. 
You've never looked at him through the relationship of a loving Heavenly Father. You've only looked at him in the sense of trying to appease him. And in trying to appease him, you're working for your salvation. Friends, I just want to tell you, you may be the hardest worker in the room. You may be more, more moral than any of us. But you will still fall short of the glory of God. It's to him that no longer works, but believes that it will be accounted to them for righteousness. Believing in what? Believing upon Jesus Christ as the sinless, perfect sacrifice, the gift of God to us, his people. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. I thank you as I pray to you as my Father. Thank you for the grace you've sustained me with this morning. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. And as we cherish the person and work and the finished work of Christ, I pray that at this, this very moment, that we would see with heavenly eyes a vision and glory and see that you are bringing all things to its consummated end. And Father, we know that you will fulfill your promises by looking back and seeing how you sent your Son as the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb for us, your people. Father, the next time you will send your Son as a lion who will come, consummate his kingdom. Father, you will reign endlessly forever. What we have right here in time is a moment. It's a moment for some that they will never have again. And it's a moment to look upon Jesus and to rest in him and his finished work. Men try to save themselves through good merits, good deeds, good works, as, as we've described this morning. But it is only through the finished work of Christ that we can be saved. Father, would you give humility to those who may be wrestling with their lostness this morning? Would you give them the ability to confess, to rest, to repent, to turn to, and to look to Jesus, who alone can save? Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, as described in John chapter 3, verse 16, and Galatians 4, that you have sent. Father, it's the most precious gift that has ever been given. And we say with Paul, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.